going to jump in here. I wanted to just share a few things that I've figured out about debt after digging and doing some researching. But I first want to just kind of be honest about what my expectations are this morning. My estimation is roughly a third of you will, will completely tune out and not listen to a word I say as soon as I start talking. Just to be fair, roughly a third of you are going to go, this guy's crazy. What he's saying is so opposite to what we've all been taught our entire lives about money and debt and just tune me out. I, I'm hopeful that I'll hang on to roughly two-thirds of you and that after that, about half of you will at least for a week or two try to live according to the principles we lay out from the Bible. I suspect maybe five to ten percent of you will actually adopt this as a lifelong process. So that's my expectations. They're exceedingly high, uh, as you can tell. I'm hopeful for more, uh, but that's where we're starting from. Last week, we covered one major premise. It took me roughly 45 minutes to communicate this, that everything we have comes from Jesus. We're very efficient, and we hope to improve on that this morning. But that's the big idea from last week. If you weren't here, I want to encourage you to go online and listen to it. You can download it via our podcast if you use iTunes. But that's the big idea from last week is that Jesus owns everything and everything we have is because of His grace to us. And, and so that's what we started with. And now we're going to look at debt because understanding that first truth really plays out in terms of how we approach and, and deal with debt. A couple things of, of note for you. There's roughly, according to the Census Bureau, 1.5 billion active credit cards in America today. Roughly 1.5 billion. The New York Times took that stat, and I don't know how they figured this up, but they said if we just stacked them on top of each other, that is a roughly 70-mile high stack of credit cards, or 13 Mount Everests, if we were to stack them. So there's, listen to this, there's roughly 300 million people in America. Let's say 40% of them are way too little to have a credit card. So we're looking then, 180, 200 million Americans with 1.5 billion credit cards. That's quite a few per person, isn't it? And it stacks all the way up 70 miles into space. The average American household has over $15,000 in credit card debt with an average interest rate of around 14%. was talking to Howard Mitchell, who's been a great resource to us. Howard is a member here, and he's, he's a is it area or regional director for Crown Financial Ministries, which is a ministry that helps people and churches orient their finances around God's Word. And Crown, uh, Howard said he ran some rough numbers and says that basically the average person spends somewhere around between a half a million and $1.5 million just in interest in their lifetime. So you find yourself in the range. If you're on the low end in your lifetime, you're going to spend about half a million dollars in finance charges if you're average. If you... If you're not crazy, if you have a regular size mortgage, uh, if you if you drive cheaper cars and don't go crazy with your credit card, you'll probably spend a half mil. And if you really do it up, it's going to be somewhere around 1.5. I would suspect most of us would come in probably in that three quarters of a million dollars that we would pay in a lifetime. We've been uh, mortgage shopping since we're building the house. We're going to the permanent mortgage, and so I'm running these mortgage calculators, and one of the scary numbers is they show you if you paid this thing off, not a day early, across the life of the loan, 
you basically pay as much or more in interest than you actually did for the house. That's a lot of money going down the drain for things that we'll never see. Most college graduates graduate with a minimum of $40,000 in student loans. That's a great way to start your life in the whole 40K. Most Christians say that they would love to give more if they were freed up and had less debt. Having been a senior pastor a little while, the first, as we did this church plant in the Dallas area, we had, I had a young couple come to me, a couple we were good friends with, um, and he began to share with me that he really wished that they could give, and they felt guilty because they, they were part of the church, they loved the church, but they, they didn't give it all to the church because they had so much debt. They were recent college graduates, and, and they had a baby, and all of these things. And so I said, well, I understand what you're feeling. I know that, that you're young, you're trying to get off your feet, but, but maybe we could figure some things out. I mean, are you, do you want me to absolve you of this and tell you it's okay, or are you saying you want help? And he said, we'd like help. We want to talk through this. I said, well, bring your checkbook, and we'll talk through it. We'll look. And I said, my bet is within a roughly 30 to 40 minutes, we could probably free up two to $300. He said, really? I said, yeah, what do you pay for cable? <laughs> well, wait, wait a minute. And, I, and he's a good friend, and so I say, look, I'll never go there again if you tell me not to, but I see that really nice truck you guys just got, you know. He goes, well, you know, I do metal work, so I need a truck. I said, I agree, you need a truck. Do you need a $40,000 truck? Well, probably not. So many of us, we start off in debt because we make these, and we want to give, but, but over time we've made these decisions that make it virtually impossible until somehow we begin to correct course. And so, where we want to begin with is, what does the Bible say about debt? Does the Bible mention it? What does it say? The Bible says a good bit about debt and money, but the first thing I'll tell you is what the Bible doesn't say. The Bible doesn't say that being in debt is a sin. It doesn't say that, so I can't say that. So, the Bible doesn't tell you that, so I don't have a verse to quote because I'm telling you the absence of a Bible verse, which is the one that would say, debt is a sin. It's not there. So, if you have a credit card... You're not sinning, necessarily. You might be. We'll talk about that later. If you have a car note, that's not a sin. It might be stupid, but it's not a sin. I've been stupid with money. I financed a car one time, a computer one time, a computer? And a refrigerator those are foolish things to finance. Oh, every one of them, the moment I walked out of the store with them, lost at least 15% in value. And there I am, owing more than the product's worth 24 hours into it. But we've all been dumb with money, and it's okay to say, hey, that was dumb, pay your stupid tax and move on. But the Bible doesn't say it's a sin. It will show us that it's really unwise to saddle yourselves with debt. There's these shows on TV where these guys do absolutely ridiculous things, uh, like putting on dog shock collars and shock, shocking one another. That's absolutely stupid. It's not a sin. It will hurt you. It's probably not a sin. And that's kind of what debt is here. Is it something that will hurt us that doesn't make sense? It's not wise. Our friends will probably laugh at us, but it's not a sin. I want to share briefly, if you just run the numbers, why debt may not be smart. Harvard Business School ran a study. Dave Ramsey, who's a personal financial 
expert talks about this study a lot, that the average American spends 18% more when they're making their daily purchases when they use a credit card versus paying in cash. So the average American is pulling out the Visa card versus taking out the wallet and putting a 20 down is much more likely to, to spend. In fact, we said we spend 18% more. The same study talks about the experience McDonald's had when they began to offer pay by credit card. They saw revenues increase 54%. Because when we have $5 and we walk up and we order the number one and it's $4.79 and they say, do you want a biggie size? We say, no, I have $5. But when I walk up and they say, would you like the biggie size? Sure. Because we all need more fries and a bigger soda. That's what we need. And we say yes. And so if you're the average American, you're going to spend 18% more on your everyday purchases so you can get the points. The math doesn't work on the points, I promise. And then if you go to a restaurant, especially fast food, you're going to spend around 50% more there. So even let's say you're twice as restrained as everyone else. It's 9% and 27%. Versus if you had paid cash where you would have exercised restraint. The, 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 the study kind of concluded this, is that when you pay with cash, there's a psychological pain point that throwing the plastic out doesn't hit. So that's from a worldly perspective why using credit, while buying on credit cards isn't wise. The thing to remember is that consumer credit is the most aggressively marketed product in America. Let's do a little... Survey here. Raise your hand if any time in the last week you received some kind of pre-approved credit offer. In the last week, raise your hand. Wow. How many other times do we get every week, at least twice a week, direct mail about a product? Consumer debt is the most aggressively marketed product in America. It is a billion dollar a year industry just sending out that direct mail. Do you know why it's so aggressively marketed? It's highly profitable. They make tons of money doing it. And now, now let's th- think about this. If the credit card company and the consumer lending companies make a ton of money doing it, how do you, whose money is that? Well, it was yours. It was mine. But they trick us in. And the thing to note, guys, is this is a well-oiled machine. It's a really well-done business plan. We probably won't beat it. In the end, if we play with snakes, we get bit. That's the moral of the story from a simple math perspective about sin, about debt. The Bible doesn't say it's a sin, but when we run the numbers, it doesn't work out. So let's jump into what the Bible does say about debt. The big idea from the Bible is that debt should be avoided, and if you find yourself in debt, pay it off quickly. Look at Romans chapter 13. Before we go any further, I missed one important announcement. We're going to invite everyone to turn their cell phones on for the moment. That's that's very odd. i got weird looks there. Uh, Put it on vibrate, and we're going to ask you during the sermon, if you have a question... To text it. Can we put that number up, guys? I'm sorry I threw you off. I just was raring to go. Uh, it's also in your program at 713-259-9061. Now, if I see you with your iPhone doing this, we know that's not you sending a message and you playing a video game. And I will call you out personally. 
Um, 713-259-9061. And you can text a question. If you run across something, you go, you know, I'd like to think about that a little more. Uh, maybe hear from that. So after the sermon, we're going to come back and answer as many questions as we can. So it's in your program. There it is. Uh, appreciate you guys in the booth rolling with me. So let's jump into Romans 13. What does the Bible say about debt? Romans 13, verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt of love to one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. So if you're in debt, you need to pay it off quickly. The Bible says don't let any debt remain outstanding. Don't let the debt linger there. You need to pay it off. The only debt you should have is your continuing debt of love to one another. Because someone's blessed you and, and you appreciate them and you want to bless them in return. You want to be a blessing to others because God has blessed you so greatly. The Bible says that should be the only debt we have. So debt should be avoided. And if you find yourself in it, let's get out of it. Let's dig out quickly. So the Bible's clear teaching is that we are to pay back our debt and get out of it. Romans, excuse me, Psalm 37 teaches us an important principle about borrowing. Psalm 37, verse 21. It says, The wicked borrow and do not repay, but the righteous give generously. So if you're borrowing money and you're not intending to repay it, that is wicked. Now that is a sin because that is stealing. If someone gives me money to do something and I do it and don't repay them, it's as if I stole whatever I bought from them. So if I buy the new TV on the credit card and then default on the credit card, it's as if I stole a TV. The Bible says that's wicked. And so when you borrow money, get out of debt quickly, avoid being in debt, pay off what you owe. So we should only borrow when we intend to pay it back. And this is something interesting. that The Bible teaches us to, to approach debt and getting out of debt with great intensity. With great intensity. It uses the example in Proverbs 6, which we'll go to in just a minute, of a gazelle running from a hunter. Anyone ever watch Animal Planet or National Geographic and you see the beautiful plains of Africa and then you see all oh, the pretty gazelles just kind of frolicking around doing what gazelles do, and then in the bushes, the female lion is creeping. And she's hiding behind the, the tall grass, and then she springs out, and, and she picks out the little weak gazelle, and begins to chase after him, and the gazelle runs, doesn't he? Do, do you think the gazelle is more intense than the lioness? Because... The lioness is out a meal if she loses. The gazelle's a goner. The gazelle's done for. It's as if the gazelle's very life is at stake. And the Bible says in Proverbs 6 that we are to approach getting out of debt in the same manner. Look at Proverbs 6, verses 4 through 5. In this passage, it's actually referring to if you have, if you have signed or co-signed for someone else. If you've put up security for them or assume someone else's debt. This is what he says. He says, Free yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the snare of the fowler. 
Go to the ant, you sluggard, and consider its ways and be wise. So he says, look, if you find yourself in debt, if you find yourself and you've, you've co-signed for someone else and you've assumed their debt on their behalf, like a gazelle runs from the hunter, like someone whose very life is in danger, be aggressive and get out of debt. Dave Ramsey calls this gazelle-like intensity. That, that we just recognize that, that our very financial lives are at, at risk there and we strive like crazy to get out of it and to get out of it fast. So that's the Bible's teaching on debt. So practically, what does that look like? If you want to get out of debt and avoid it aggressively, there's a couple first steps you have to take. Because many of us are used to using the credit card to finance life. Even if we pay it off monthly, we're still 30 days out on paying our bills. So when you think of it this way, if you use credit cards just for the regular purchases of life, you are paying for last month when you get this month's check. So even if you're not way out there in debt, you're still going to rip the band-aid off and incur some pain as you try to get away from that and get current. So I want to walk through a few simple steps that you can go through. The first is to stop incurring debt. That's a pretty simple one. If you find yourself in debt and you want to follow the Bible's teaching and say, I want to get out of debt quickly, pay off what I owe, and have my only debt being the debt of love that I have for other people and for God, then the first step is to stop incurring debt, to quit borrowing. And that may look like taking your credit card and some scissors and making an adjustment. Stop using them. Because every time you purchase it, we don't even think about that, but every time we swipe the credit card, we incur debt. We have bought something with someone else's money and the expectation it will be repaid. Now, immediately you get these things like, well, I can't rent a car if I don't have... How often do you rent a car, first of all? And second, if you have a debit card or a check card from your bank that's connected to your checking account, you can rent cars and get hotel rooms and all that stuff. So it doesn't really impede life. You just get a check card and you can operate in the same way, except now when you swipe it, you actually are paying instead of waiting 30 days to pay. So you stop using the credit card. The second big thing you need to do is actually write out a budget, and that's a difficult process if you've never done it. A budget is this, guys, in case you're not sure. It's a register of the expenses against the income, where we make decisions about where money goes. It's a good process to go through as a couple. When we talk about planning the last week of the series, we'll go into that a little more in depth. We also have Howard with, with Crown Financial. He's got a team of guys from within, and ladies from within our church that are going to be available to coach you through creating a first budget if you've never done it. On our website, you will find some guidelines and ideas about that. If you go to the In God We Trust main page, we've got some resources for you to download to begin that planning process. But you create a budget where you go, this is what we make, this is what we're going to spend here, so now we have a plan. Then from there, it's probably a good idea to put about a thousand bucks in the bank as an emergency fund. Because invariably, if you make the decision to get out of debt, what is going to happen is some unexpected expense will pop up. And you'll find yourself with the temptation to go right back into the same mode of thinking. Because when it comes down, if the, if the uh, dishwasher breaks, or the, or the, even worse, the washing machine breaks, and my decision is re-wearing clothes or buying it on the credit card, I'll probably use the credit card. That's probably what I would do. But if you take a little time, you put a little bit of money aside, when those hiccups come, when Murphy's Law attacks, you won't have to rush back to the old way of doing things with the credit card. So put about a thousand bucks in the bank and then you go after it. 
You start paying them off. Uh, there's a couple ways to do this. Let me tell you the process we went through, which was uh, what Dave Ramsey recommends. He calls it the debt snowball. And what, what the plan was is you take the smallest debt first. Some folks would tell you you take the one with the highest interest rate because that's better math. But if we were great at math, we wouldn't have found ourselves in this situation to begin with. Uh, so you take the smallest one first and you just attack it. You pay minimum bounces on everything else. And like a gazelle, you take the smallest one first and you knock it out. And the reason you do that is quickly you get a win. And you get to check one off the list. And then you take everything else that you were paying on that one, you roll it to number two and you go after number two. And, and we went through this about three and a half years ago. And it was such a blessing. We actually made it fun when we got this gazelle intense. What we did is we said the only way... Alicia and I get to go on a date is if we can come under budget on everything else and still hit our plan on paying off the debt. And so the only way we'd go out to eat is if we beat the other stuff. So all of a sudden, saving money at the grocery store or passing up on lunch with friends at work became something enjoyable because the payoff was I got to take my wife out on a date. But we got intense about this. It became the priority for us. We were going to get out of debt. And so we did that. We, we just pursued it hard. And so you take a, the number one, the smallest one, you knock it off. You go to number two, you knock it off. And you find yourself just getting excited when you get to check those things off the list. In a little while, at the end of the sermon, you're going to hear the story of someone in our church who had that same kind of joy as they begin following God's teaching and checking things off the list. And the excitement that they had as they were digging themselves out of debt with the gracious hand of God supporting them. So that's kind of the practical idea in a nutshell of how you go after this. You, you sit down, you figure out what the debts are. Some of us don't even know. You write down a budget, you put a little money in savings, and then you just start going after it. Like a gazelle flees from the hunter. A few things related to debt to remember is that uh, it's not God's ideal for us doesn't mean that every debt is horrible. It means that none of them are really where we want to be. And there's a few areas, if you look at life, you're probably going to have some debt. And it's not maybe the end of the world. You just need to get after it. If you're going to buy a house in America, you're probably going to have a mortgage. And keep it modest. Don't go crazy and try to pay it off ahead of time. But you're probably going to have a mortgage. And if you compare that to renting long term and trying to save, the math doesn't work. It's probably the best financial decision to get a modest mortgage. The analyst will tell you you want it somewhere between 25, no more than 30% of your take-home pay. But probably going to have some debt on a house for a while. You should probably try to pay it off ahead of time. You may have to incur debt to go to college. Now, don't be crazy. Right? There's no sense in going to a private school, spending $100,000 on an education to come out with a theater degree. No offense to anyone who has a theater degree. It's just that the return on the investment doesn't work. If you plan on being a school teacher, God bless you. But you don't need to go to Harvard to do that. You don't need to go to TCU to do that. State school will work fine. Choose something that makes sense. And so... School debt may be a necessary evil, but be wise with it. I can remember being in college, there was refund check day. I don't know if anyone knows, let me explain refund check day. You can borrow really as much money as you want, and they just send the check to the school. And so let's say you borrowed $8,000 that semester, but school costs four. Then refund day happens. 
And the school cuts you a check for the other four. And for about three weeks on campus, everyone has money. And that's how people walk away with this huge student loan debt. Most of it didn't even go to actual educational expenses. I can remember buying ridiculous gifts and stuff when refund day came out. It's just idiotic. But student loans may be a necessity, but they need to be held tightly. And they need to be kept reined in. One of the biggest blessings I had is when I transferred to Bible college and they wouldn't allow you to borrow more money than your tuition cost. Which really helped me because at the time, I didn't think straight about money yet. And let me tell you one more instance in which I think debt's okay. Which would be medical debt. If one of my kids gets sick and there's a treatment that's really costly and the insurance company doesn't pay it, I'll finance that thing to the no end. Okay? Maybe I'm wrong in that one. But if the issue is between losing a kid or a family member and incurring debt, I'll go into debt in my eyeballs. But I can't really, to be fair, I can't really think of another reasonable use of debt other than a modest mortgage, modest student loans if you absolutely have to do that if there's no other way, and medical expenses that are necessities. Not elective surgeries like straighten my nose, but real medical necessities that are life and death issues and I just can't think of anything else. I've been asking people that I think are wise, but from a personal expenses, that's really all I can see. So why is the Bible so opposed to debt? Why is the Bible, why does the Bible say don't borrow money? Everyone else borrows money. Your economics teacher will tell you that money is a leverage, is a, is a tool, it's leverage to get things done that you otherwise couldn't get done. That's what you, but your economics teacher's broke. So his advice may not be great. There's a book out called the, the Every Was It The Millionaire Next Door. It's a secular book. It's not coming from a Christian perspective. They just did a study of all these millionaires. What they found about the average everyday millionaire is one you'd never expect they were a millionaire. Two, they drove cars that were used when they bought them, roughly three to four years old. And four, they lived in modest homes that they had lived in for a long time. That's the average everyday millionaire in America. They're not running around using other people's money to leverage a lifestyle. So that's how you win. So here's what the Bible says and why it doesn't like debt. Begin in Proverbs 22. Proverbs 22, verse 7 says, The rich rule over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. The Bible is opposed to debt for the first reason, that it makes us servant to someone other than Jesus. We are to serve Christ. And when we incur debt, we become servant to someone else. Because their debt, that note that they hold over us, dictates how we spend our money, what we do with our time, what our career, career field is. It dictates how generous we can be. It dictates all of these things in our lives that we no longer get to make the decision for, someone else does for us because we have made an obligation to them to pay off a debt. You guys, on a side note, you know why they invented drive-through banking? So your car would get to meet its owner? That's the deal. When we incur debt, when we borrow all this money, all of a sudden we don't get to make the decisions about where our money goes, do we? We don't get to do that. And what we could find, I would guarantee you, that if we talk to people in different mission agencies, if we just pulled them, 
we would say how many people have really wanted to go on missionary trips or be a part of missions or maybe career missionaries and have had to say no because of debt. That they felt like God was leading them to do something in life, but they had to say no because they had backed themselves into a corner where they had all of these obligations and they'd become servants to someone other than Jesus and they had to say no. I will guarantee that it's not all that uncommon. I know plenty of people who who want to do something else with their lives other than what they're doing, and they're staying at a job that makes them absolutely miserable because they've backed themselves into all these payments. And so they've traded leather upholstery for a life of misery because they're incurred all this debt, and they have to serve the debt. So we buy the stuff thinking it will make us happy, but in the end we end up being its servant. It says, when you borrow, you become servant to the lender. Recognizing this dynamic is also really important when it approaches family because every family member has someone who wants to borrow money from them. And I refuse to allow a family member to become my servant. I don't want that to mess up our friendship. So I refuse to loan money to family. Now let me say, before that sounds cold, if I have the spare money and someone needs something, I am more than happy to give it to them. But I will not loan money to a family member because what I don't want to happen is to sit there while that person owes me 50 bucks and see them go to Chili's and wonder where my money is. And you've had that. You've all loaned money to a friend at some point or a family member and then you see them not paying you back and doing all these elective things and it puts strain on your friendship. So if you find yourself in that situation, if you've loaned money to someone and you're beginning to get that I'm your master kind of thing over them, it's, it's very, very damaging. So if you want to re- restore that relationship, to be honest, if you can afford to, the best thing to do is just to write it off. It's to go to that person and say, I'm not going to loan you money anymore. I love you. The debt is forgiven. I don't want this to come between us. The borrower is slave to the lender and it ruins the dynamic. So just a little piece of wisdom that we've learned, that we've heard from others as well, is not to loan money to friends and family. If you can help them, give it to them. If you can't, don't. So why is it such a big deal that we serve someone else? Why why does that matter? I want you to look at Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3 is very riveting to me. Because it is the first time that Moses, who writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, meets God. So it's the first time that the first author of the Scriptures has a close encounter with the God of creation. And in this we find God in Exodus 3, verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt, and I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and bring them out of the land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So I want you to look at this. God looks down at His people. He sees them in bondage. He's moved by their suffering, and He decides to set them free. And from the beginning of Scripture, we find God intent on setting His people free. Jesus comes, dying on a cross, rising again, conquering sin and death and the devil, so that we could be set free from sin and death. Over the entire story of Scripture, we find God desiring His people to be free. Debt is a form of bondage. 
It is not a tool to get things done that you couldn't do otherwise. It is a form of bondage. That is what the Bible says, that we are slaves when we go crazy incurring debt. And God's intention for us is exactly the opposite. God doesn't want us to be tied up. God came to set us free. Yet we walk right back into the prison cell and throw the shackles on. Every time we take out the credit card. Every time we buy something we didn't need with money we didn't have to impress people we don't like. Every time we do that, we take God's plan for our freedom and we haywire it so that now we have all these obligations that chain us to decisions that we otherwise wouldn't make. So God says, I want you to be free. Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus set us free from the bondage of sin and that that's His desire. The other big problem that the Bible points out is that debt is a sure sign of discontentment. Consumer debt is a sign that says, I'm not content with the rate at which God is blessing me. We talked last week that that every good and perfect thing comes from God so that all the blessings we have, everything we've ever had, is because God is gracious and good to us. And consumer debt is a sign of us looking at that and going, could we speed up the time frame? I know that every good thing I have comes from you, God, but I'd like some more, and I'd like it quicker. And so while I can't afford this thing yet, I can buy it today and pay it off on the back end, and then I short-circuit God's design to bless me. You can search the Bible, and you will never find God providing for His people through a loan. It's always through His generosity as they wait patiently upon Him. And debt, when we go buying stuff that we can't afford, is a sign of our discontentment. In Matthew 6, Jesus says, Don't worry about storing up treasures all the time on earth where moth and rust destroy, where things break down and fall apart. Store up treasures in heaven. He says, God, God wants you to have treasures in heaven, things that really matter, that, that have lasting value, that won't be destroyed. Don't worry about all the stuff you have at the house. And I want you to look at Ephesians 1. I want us to be honest about what God has given us and what we're being discontented with. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to the praise of His glorious grace, which He has freely given us in the one He loves, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sin, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He has lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Look at that. It says God has given, if, if you know Christ, if you have been brought into the family of God through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross, you have been given every spiritual blessing. Everything that really matters, everything that's of value, everything that will last, you already have. You already have it. He says you've been given, as Jesus shed His blood, this this love has been lavished on you. God has just poured open the floodgates of everything that really matters. And when we run after stuff and we borrow money to get it, we look at Christ hanging on the cross, His blood shed so that God could lavish His love on us. We look at that and we go, that's nice, but mildly insufficient. 
That's what debt indicates in our hearts. Is that while Jesus has given us everything that matters, we want other stuff too, so much so that we will completely just step away from what the Bible teaches. So Jesus has given you everything. What more do you need? In Philippians, the Apostle Paul says, I've learned the secret of contentment, which is I can do all things in Jesus. So if you want to learn contentment, look at what Jesus has given you. That in Christ, dying for your sins on the cross, rose again, God has blessed you abundantly, exceedingly, infinitely, in every way that matters. And rather than rejoicing in that, we often turn and say, I'd like some other stuff that really doesn't matter all that much. Because that makes me feel better. Because I have some satisfaction that I'm not looking to God for, so I go to the store. And maybe if Jesus can't meet the need in my heart, maybe Neiman's can. And maybe Visa will help me do that. And then maybe I can discover what slavery looks like. And then maybe my card will be my master. When God says, I've given you everything. What more could I give you than my Son, His blood poured out for you, my grace lavished upon you, adopting you into my family, making you my children, children of the Most High God. And you, what else do you need? Can we look at that and be discontented? Can we look at that infinite love and say that's not enough? And if we can, what is wrong with us? And I know, guys, that, that when we make purchases for things we can't afford, when we put it on credit, that what I just said doesn't run through your minds. I know that. But when we net it out, when we step back from it, that's what it plays out. Is that we're looking to somewhere other than Jesus for satisfaction and joy and meaning. And when we look to Him, we find that we've already been giving everything we could ever want. I want to go back to Ephesians 1. Verse 18. This is my prayer for you today. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and the incomparable great power for those who believe. The power is like the working of His mighty strength which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and appointed Him to be the head over everything for the church which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. It's Jesus who fills everything in every way. Is the fullness of God's blessing poured out on you. And the Apostle Paul looks at the church and says, my prayer is that you'd see that. That that's what you'd see. That when you look for meaning or significance or value or status, that you wouldn't look to your possessions and how others think of them and, and spend money on things to medicate some sense of, of dissatisfaction or uncertainty or... or some sense of insufficiency in your own life, but that you would look to Christ in your weakness. And that in doing that, you would see the glory of God's riches poured out on you. And that you would have a joyful, grateful, and contented spirit. In a minute, we're going to take up our offering. And then uh, we're going to hear a story of a member of our church who's 
going through this journey of trying to honor God as they get out of debt. But here's where it's at. Because we just boil this down to one thing. Everything that we've ever needed that has ever mattered has been given to us in Jesus. We should be content with that. We shouldn't need cool toys, tricks, and cars to feel good about us. And debt, while it's not a sin in and of itself, is like the check engine light on the dashboard of life. It starts flashing, telling us there's problem, there might be a problem here. You might be seeking joy and satisfaction and meaning and identity and stuff rather than God. So in, in a moment after we take the offering, we'll have a time of, of singing to respond. And I would ask you to examine your hearts. That, look at the dashboard of life. Is something wrong? Is there a breakdown somewhere that you need to turn to God and trust Him fully? If you're here today and you're not a believer, you've never trusted in Jesus, I want you to know that you don't need stuff to be happy, to be important, and to have meaning. That the God of this universe who created everything looked into our condition, saw us enslaved to sin, sent His only Son to die on the cross for us, lavished His love upon us infinitely, extravagantly, so that if we trusted in Jesus, we would be forgiven. That's an amazing thing to just rejoice in, to be grateful for, and to be contented in. Let's pray, and if the gentleman that had taken the offering would come forward. Father God, we thank you that you have given to us exceedingly and abundantly, that we have no, well, we have no idea why you've been so good to us. Father, I pray that you would help us to look upon the cross, to look at Jesus, at your love, lavished upon us, poured out extravagantly, and be content in that, that we would rejoice in that. I pray as we take up our offering that you would use it mightily, that you would do amazing things through this ministry, through this offering, so that many people would be able to see your Son high and exalted, rejoice in his death for their sins, and his resurrection, giving us the promise of eternal life. We praise these things in Jesus' name.